Please turn your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Exodus and also to Hebrews chapter 3. Exodus 15 and Hebrews 3. A hypocrite is defined in the dictionary as one who feigns virtue or piety, a pretender from the Greek hypocritus, which means actor. I read an article recently about uh, Japan and the importance of saving face, the importance of appearances. The article was entitled, In Japan's Weddings, the Bride's Father Just May Be Rented. And it talks about the fact that in Japan it's so important that uh, you maintain appearances and that at your wedding or at your funeral, the proper people be there. There need to be some important business people, business executives. There need to be some government officials. There need to be friends, obviously. What's a fellow to do if he doesn't know any important businessmen, he doesn't know any government officials, and his bride-to-be doesn't have many friends? Well, he rents them. Uh, there's a company that rents these out. It's called uh, Neko Note. It means the cat's paw. Uh, they call it the cat's paw. The implication is that sometimes you're in a situation where you need all the help you can get. Even the cat's paw needs to help you out. And so for $114 to $190 per person, he rents. People who act like business executives, government officials, or friends. At a recent wedding, out of 80 people present, 60 were rented. Well, uh, you know, we have hypocrites in the church. People who play the part. But it's not real. There's no real relation to Christ. There's no real obedience to Him. They've never really given their lives to Christ. I read another article about a Welch mine and an accident that took place in this mine involving ten people, ten miners. One of the miners had left the other nine and was headed out from underground when suddenly the collapse of the mine took place and he got caught, but he didn't get caught like the others got caught. They were entrapped, and uh, they were cut off from any air, were soon to suffocate. He got caught in the debris so that timbers and things fell on him and entrapped him, but he could breathe. He was uh, not enclosed. The rescue party immediately was formed and came in to seek to do a rescue, and they got to him first and started digging him out. And he said, no, look, I can breathe. I'm going to be all right. You go for those guys on down the mine. They, they're going to die if you don't get to them. Just leave me a lantern. I can dig myself out. So they did that and went on. He began digging himself out. And as he uncovered his legs, suddenly to his shock, he realized that one leg had been cut off just above the knee. And he was bleeding to death there. Uh, he screamed pitifully for them to come back and help him. He hadn't realized how much need he was in. Sometimes folks in the church are not hypocrites. Uh, they are not Christians and just don't realize they're not Christians. They, they think others need help and they don't realize the help they need, that they really are dying spiritually. 
In uh, the book of Exodus, which we've been following, we come to the 15th chapter, and it relates to this matter of hypocrisy, as we shall see. Uh, first, we have the position they entered. They have crossed the Red or Reed Sea, and uh, the next movement in this amazing history we pick up in verse 22 of Exodus 15. So Moses brought Israel from the Red or Reed Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. They're in the wilderness. Now, we've spoken of the fact that this great movement and birth of the nation of Israel was not just a historical fact, but was God designed to demonstrate the way of salvation, to picture on the map of history how you and I can come into a right relationship with God. Uh, Israel's situation in Egypt, they were in bondage. They had a stern taskmaster, Pharaoh. The angel of death was coming. They were going to die, their eldest son was, unless some way of escape was found. God appointed a way of escape, the blood of the Passover lamb. On the tenth day of the seventh month, they were to select a lamb. On the fourteenth day, they were to kill the lamb, each family, a lamb for a family. And they were to place the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their home. And when the angel of death came that night at midnight, he would see the blood and he would pass over that home. Well, that pictured, of course, uh, Jesus' blood. He's the real lamb. So in the New Testament, it says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Uh, that situation in Egypt, uh, we're in bondage before we become Christians. We're in bondage to sin and to Satan, a stern taskmaster. Guilt is hanging over us. Judgment is coming our way. God's judgment, well deserved on our part. God has appointed a way to escape the death of his son, who was the real lamb. Uh, his blood is applied to us, to our souls, when we put our faith in him, when we surrender our will to him and put our trust in him. That's placing the door over our doorpost. He died on the 14th day of the seventh month. None of that lamb's bones would be broken because none of his bones would be broken, although the two men on either side of him had their bones broken uh, when they were crucified. Uh, the lamb was to be without spot or blemish because he would be without sin. The lamb was slain in the evening because he would die in the afternoon and so on. Uh, all these points are parallel. Now, when you are delivered from uh, Egypt, when you're a Christian, when you're born again, uh, when the blood's been applied to you by faith in Christ, you believe his claim to be God the Son who died for you, you put your trust in him to save you, a sinner. You believe that he rose from the dead. And you surrender your will to him as your master. You're born again. You're, you are out of Egypt. You're on your way to the promised land. What does the promised land symbolize? Well, it symbolizes heaven. According to the hymns that we sing, we Use the hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. Uh, one verse said, Land me safe on Canaan's shore. That's talking about heaven. And in that sense, Jordan would be death. 
when you die, you go to Canaan, you cross Jordan. And uh, the spiritual uh, looked over Jordan, and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me. That's, again, picturing uh, Canaan as heaven and Jordan as death. Some of my favorite uh, writers and uh, Christian preachers and teachers would disagree with me. And they would say, no, no, uh, Canaan doesn't represent heaven. It represents Christ right now and what you have in Christ, your possession. You need to possess your possessions. You need to occupy the land. For instance, Major Ian Thomas, in his book, The Saving Life of Christ, says... Do not be deceived by the false significance given to Canaan in so much popular hymnody. Remember, Canaan is Christ now, not heaven one day. And he goes on, The wilderness is a picture of what the New Testament describes as a carnal Christian. So according to that theory, the unsaved state would be pictured by Egypt. The wilderness would be the carnal Christian. Canaan would be the spirit-filled Christian. Jordan, crossing Jordan, would be not death, but learning to die to self and be filled with the Spirit. Well, I I believe that that is wrong. And obviously, I'm right. Not uh, Not that there's not such a thing as a carnal Christian in Reformed circles and Calvinistic circles has a tendency to discount the concept of the carnal Christian. I believe that's wrong. There is such a creature. And uh, all of us fall into that category at times. Paul uses that terminology in 1 Corinthians 3 when he writes to the Corinthian Christians and he says, You are carnal. He said, I couldn't speak unto you as under spiritual, but as under carnal. Babes in Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a babe in Christ immediately after becoming a Christian, but if you remain a babe, that's not good. He said, Are you not carnal and walk as ordinary men, whereas there's strife and envying and division among you? Uh, you have uh, those who would say, Well, they're carnal like all Christians are carnal. No. Uh, He's contrasting them with another kind of Christian, a spiritual Christian. And Charles Hodge, in his great commentary on 1 Corinthians, puts it like this. He says, he is speaking of one class of Christians as distinguished from another. They were a case of arrested development. The problem and the reason for the opposition to the concept of the carnal Christian is that people tend to make it far too broad and define it wrong. They say a carnal Christian is a Christian who is like the world. No. No. If you're like the world, you're a non-Christian. You have to define a carnal Christian within limits. Uh, How shall we define a carnal Christian? Let's define it like this. Faith without works is a carnal Christian. Is that right? No. Faith without works. Faith that doesn't result in... A changed life is dead, says James. It's, it's not true faith. John, 1 John. He that says that he knows him and keeps not his commandments is 
a carnal Christian. No. He that says that he knows him and keeps not his commandments is a liar. No one keeps God's commandments perfectly. But the trend of my life must be one of obedience. And if the trend of my life is one of disobedience, then I'm not a Christian. I'm not a carnal Christian. I'm a non-Christian. He that says that he knows him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, says John. He doesn't really know him. And the truth is not in him. So, there is such a thing as the carnal Christian. But we shouldn't use this movement from Egypt to the wilderness to Canaan to illustrate the carnal Christian. Why not? Because that's not the way the Bible uses it. How do you interpret the Old Testament? We always interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. And fortunately for us, this whole movement is interpreted for us in the New Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, starting with verse 7. Now let me give you the background. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people who have professed to become Christians. But they are considering giving up Christianity and going back to Judaism. They're finding it rough going. And they're considering giving up Christianity. And the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these Jews who profess to become Christians and warning them what will happen if they go back to Judaism and give up Christianity. And he uses the experience of those people who started out from Egypt with Moses, but didn't make it to the promised land, died in the wilderness. You remember that of all those who started out, only two of that generation were allowed to go into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. All the rest of that generation had to wander in the wilderness until they died 40 years later because of their rebellion against God. He uses that to warn this group. Notice how he uses it in verse 7. He's quoting here from the 95th Psalm where God comments on the Exodus experience. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit saith, quoting from the 95th Psalm, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. They provoked me, they tempted, they tested whether I was serious, and they found out I was, says God. And they died in the wilderness. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Now, is that a description of a carnal Christian? One who has not known God's ways, one who always errs in his heart, who God swore in his wrath will not enter into my rest. Is that a description of a carnal Christian and is the rest that he didn't enter into, namely Canaan, is that saying he didn't enter the spirit-filled life? Or is that a description of a non-Christian? That's a description of a non-Christian. He always errs in his heart. He has not known God's ways. 
God says they are radically and habitually evil. Notice in verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. You notice the issue is if we are a partaker of Christ, not the Spirit-filled life. He's not saying if I can just hold out unto the end at that point when I die, I'll become a partaker of Christ. What he's saying is the evidence that I am a partaker of Christ, that I really have repented and really have put my faith in Christ, I'm really united to Christ. The evidence that I'm a partaker of Christ is that I hold out to the end. I don't go back as these Hebrew Christians were thinking about doing, these Hebrews who profess to have become Christians were thinking about doing. He uses this to warn those Hebrews. Verse 12, he applies it. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The word departing from is in the Greek apostatizing, and apostatizing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Uh, Verse 19, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. They didn't have faith in the gospel, in the good news. They didn't really have salvation. What was Moses' situation? Moses' situation was that he had a group of hypocrites with him. The great majority of the people who came out of Egypt of that first generation were hypocrites. In the uh, song, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, the verses say, Who's that yonder dressed in red? Must be the children that Moses led. Uh, Who's that yonder dressed in white? Must be the children of the Israelites. Who's that yonder dressed in black? must be the hypocrites turning back. Exactly. Moses had with him a group of people who externally were out of Egypt, but their hearts were still in Egypt. That's like a person who's externally out of the world. He's in the church, but his heart's still in the world. What happens to people like that? They don't make it to the promised land. They die in the wilderness. That's why in his design, in his drawing, God has that group of people die in the wilderness. You say, wait a minute. Moses died in the wilderness, right? Aaron died in the wilderness, right? We're not saying everyone who died in the wilderness was a hypocrite. There was another reason why Moses died there. Moses represented the law. Can the law lead you into the promised land? No, the law can't lead you. Who can lead you into the promised land? Only Jesus. What's Jesus' name in Hebrew? Joshua. So God has Joshua lead them in to the promised land. 
uh, picturing how we really can go there. He keeps Moses out for one offense, because one offense of the law will keep you out of the promised land, unless you're saved through Christ. Well, uh, but the great majority of the people who died in the wilderness were hypocrites, and God's showing through having them die in the wilderness what happens to the person who's externally out of the world, but his heart's still in the world. Well, the awful danger of hypocrisy in the church. When my youngest daughter, who just had a baby boy, <clears throat> uh, was uh, a little girl, and she liked that song, Who's That Yonder Dressed in Red and Black? And she used to say, well, what's a hypocrite? And Barbara would say, well, Peggy, a hypocrite is somebody who says they love the Lord Jesus, but they don't obey him. And for years, when we'd say, Peggy, what's a hypocrite? She'd define it like that. Someone who says they love the Lord Jesus, but they don't obey him. I hope you are a reader of Bishop J.C. Ryle, R-Y-L-E, great Anglican bishop around the turn of the century. And uh, in his book, Practical Religion, he has a chapter on reality. He bases it, among other texts, on the text in Jeremiah that talks about reprobate silver. And he says this, If we profess to have any religion or any Christianity at all, let us take care that it's real. What do I mean when I use the word real? I mean that which is genuine and sincere and honest and thorough. I mean that which is not base and hollow and formal and false and counterfeit and sham and nominal. It says, uh, I will supply some tests by which we may try the reality of our Christianity. If you would know whether your religion is real, try it by the place which it occupies in your inner man. It must occupy the citadel. It must hold the reins. It must sway the affections. It must lead the will. It must direct the taste. It must influence the choices and decisions. The next place, try it by the feelings towards sin which it produces. It will see in sin the abominable thing which God hates, the thing which makes man guilty and lost in his maker's sight, the thing which deserves God's wrath and condemnation. Try it by the feelings towards Christ which it produces. Nominal religion may believe that such a person as Christ existed and was a great benefactor to mankind. Real religion will make a man glory in Christ as the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Priest, the Friend, without whom he would have no hope at all. Christianity is real, excuse me, it says, tried by the fruits that it bears in your life and heart. The Christianity which is from above will always be known by its fruits. It will produce in the man who has it repentance, faith, Charity, humility, spirituality, self-denial, unselfishness, and so on. And uh, he says, try it by your feelings and habits about the means of grace. You'll value praise and, and prayer and preaching and studying of God's Word. He says, I advise you to cease from all trifling and playing with religion and to become honest, thoroughgoing, wholehearted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, 
the awful danger of hypocrisy. We see the position they entered. They entered the wilderness. Uh, notice the problems they encountered. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Verse 23. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. First they encounter no water, and then they encounter bitter water. You know, somehow we get the idea that when we become Christians, that all our trials will be over. And of course, there are those who proclaim that. It's called the health and wealth gospel. Uh, God wants you rich. If you just had enough faith, why, well, he'd make you rich. Uh, there's a book out by the title, God Wants You Rich and Other Enticing Myths. I like that title. Uh, God doesn't want you rich. God wants you holy. He's a lot more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. Actually, no real happiness is going to come your way until real holiness starts coming your way. And God puts us through various trials as part of his character development course. That's how he develops characters. And so you find them encountering these problems. Uh, what's your bitter water? Maybe your health, it may be your job, it may be your marriage, it may be the fact that you're not married. What is your bitter experience that you're going through? Well, notice what they did. They provoked God. Uh, they murmured, verse 24. The people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, uh, really, what Moses that put them in that situation? God led them out of Egypt. God led them. Uh, to that particular place, Marah, the bitter water. He was leading them by the cloud. They ostensibly murmur against Moses. Actually, they're murmuring against God. And your circumstances are of God. Now, you may have been partly responsible in bringing them about. And they may be his chastening hand. But nonetheless, God's in control and things don't happen by accident. Not a sparrow falls without your Heavenly Father. So when we start murmuring, we're really murmuring at God. Why do we do that? Well, it's human nature to complain, but we're not supposed to be controlled if we're Christians by human nature, but by God's Spirit. Unbelief was a real factor here. Notice what Moses does. He prays. In uh, verse 25, he cried unto the Lord. Uh, they turned from God, he turned to God. And that's what our bitter experiences ought to do. They ought to take us to God and make us deal with God. And God has a provision for the emergency. The Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. What's the tree? Well... In Scripture, often, tree points us to the death of Christ for our sins. He hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, the Old Testament taught, preparing us for the fact that when Jesus died, he would be dying under the curse of the broken law. We'd broken it, and he's taking our sin. Peter says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. 
You read about the tree of life, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. Jesus is the real tree of life. This tree was cut down. Jesus would be cut down. And uh, when we throw that tree into our bitter experience, it sweetens it. We have a man present this morning, I think, who went through a very bitter experience recently. His wife died unexpectedly. But out of that, he turned to Christ. The tree was cast into that bitter experience. He'd never been a Christian, and he accepted Christ. He felt his need of Christ. He saw how his wife's faith sustained her in her situation. And uh, that bitter experience has been sweetened by the tree being cast into it. They'll be together in heaven one day. Otherwise, she would have been in heaven and he would have been in hell. Cast that tree into your experience. Whatever it is, Christ suffered and Christ can sustain and he will sustain. Notice the purpose of the wilderness experience there. In verse 25, it says, There he made for them a statue and an ordinance, and there he proved them, he tested them. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. This, these bitter experiences were to get across certain things. They were to reform them. They were to reveal sin in their heart. You know, you don't know what sin's in your heart. You don't know what rebellion is in your heart until you go through a bitter experience. And when you do, that will erupt. It will be brought to the surface. Now you can deal with it. You can repent of it. You can yield your will. And you can ask God's forgiveness and confess it and turn from it. Uh, he puts us through these things to bring out what's in us so we can deal with it. To reveal ourselves, but also to reveal himself. Who he is and what he's prepared to do and how he can sustain us. You'll never learn who he is in the fullest extent and what he will be to you and how you can draw on his resources until you go through some tough times. And that's when you begin to learn who he really is. Well, what about it? Are we hypocrites? Murmuring? Complaining? Rebelling against God? Playing Christian but not real Christians? Not obeying? And not really surrendering our wills to his will? Externally in the church, but our hearts still in the world. Are you like, like that? Dressed in black? Maybe you're here today and you say, no, I haven't been a hypocrite, but I've been kidding myself. I thought I was all right. I'm like the man with his leg cut off. I thought others needed him and I was okay, but I realize I'm not okay. And I need him in my life. If you're a Christian, when you go through the bitter experiences, remember, God's developing character. And he's, he's bringing out things in your heart so you can face them and deal with them. And he's teaching you to trust him and obey him when the going gets rough. And look to him and draw on his resources. If you're in a bitter experience today, that's what he's doing. And uh, if you're not a Christian, turn. Turn to him who died on the tree for you. Let that be cast into your life.
Change that black clothing for the robes of righteousness that he offers. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, uh, if you have never really surrendered your will to Christ, never really trusted him, you've been playing the part, why not right now turn to him and really surrender your will to him in true repentance and trust him? Pray like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, too long my Christianity hasn't been real. I've been playing the part, but I want it to be real, and I want you in my life, and I surrender my life to you. You make changes, and by your power, I will deal with things that are wrong in my life. I trust you to come in and change me. Amen.